Welcome to the Brain Health Revolution podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. In this episode, we sat down with Dr. Nicole lipman Burley, a clinical psychologist and nutritional therapy practitioner with over 10 years of experience working with patients. She's amazing. She specializes in cognitive behavioral therapy and has this amazing social media page called Feed Your Mental a wonderful resource for evidence-based information that helps people understand the latest data on mental health and wellness. What we most love about her is her stance against the exhausting amount of pseudoscience in our shared field of neuroscience and psychology. She not only breaks down the latest evidence into palatable information, but because of her background in psychology, she also points out why some influencers are inclined to share misinformation on social media, and what we can do as responsible citizens to identify them and when it comes to their mental health for people to feel empowered. We hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. Thank you for joining us. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Um, I know I spoke before I started recording and so now I have to repeat everything, which is a little awkward, but I was just saying for the sake of audience, I want them to know and hear this as well. I was saying how much Dean and I appreciate you um, and love the way you communicate science um, on social media, which is a challenge in itself, as you know. Um, and there are not a lot of us, you know, who care so deeply and passionately about science communication, especially when it comes to mental health and wellness in general. So thank you so much for your time to come and speak with us. Absolutely. I'm so glad to be here. Very excited to talk to you guys. Wonderful. All right, Nicole, first of all, um, I would love for you to tell us a few, uh, a few words about, you know, what you do um, and how you decided to take on the responsibility for communicating about the science of mental health. Absolutely. Um, so I'll give you the rundown of the journey thus far. So I have a PhD in clinical psychology. I knew pretty much right away that I really wanted to be a clinical psychologist. My father's a clinical psychologist. So I recall him um, sharing with me some stories when I when I used to help him separate his paper notes. And I thought that was just like the coolest job ever. So I really just had my mindset on that. And that's what I did. And then um, soon after I got my degree, I started becoming interested in nutrition because I started developing some health issues on my own. I was diagnosed with PCOS. Um, and then really super randomly, like absolutely out of nowhere, decided to do a 21 day elimination challenge. And at the time that I decided to do it, I really didn't have my menstrual cycle for almost like nine months. And that was starting to worry me at that point. Um, I didn't make this connection whatsoever, but I decided to go through with the 21 day elimination challenge. And on the 21st day, it sounds like I'm making this up, but I actually got my period and that changed that really changed everything for me. So I, the next day was Sunday and I spent hours basically looking up research related to PCOS and diet um, and became absolutely obsessed basically with this link of nutrition. Two months later, I enrolled myself into an online certification to become a nutritional therapist. I did not know at the time that that was not a legit certification in nutrition. So I ended up going through with the the program. It was like a 10 month online program. And then about a year and a half later, uh, COVID hit. And I was kind of deep into the wellness industry at that point. And as soon as COVID hit, I was actually working for a major hospital here in New York. And a lot of my patients that I was seeing at the practice that I was located at was at, were actually residents and doctors. So we were actually serving a lot of the population, uh, the hospital staff in the community. And so this was like New York, you know, March of 2020, April 2020, when things were really bad. And then I was seeing this juxtaposition between what was happening in real world and what I was seeing on social media. So I started seeing a lot of wellness people talk pretty poorly about COVID and have a lot of conspiracy theories. And then that made me start looking into other things that they were talking about. So I started looking into other nutrition claims that they were making because my thought process was, well, if they're talking about this in this way, maybe they're wrong about other things. So that led me down that whole path. So basically, I have been dedicated, sort of kind of dedicated half of myself to understanding diet and mental health and if it is linked and what the relationship is in an ac very accurate 
sort of way. So that all of that kind of fueled my scientific interest in really understanding this very accurately and then also communicating this accurately as well. Fantastic. This amazing. is amazing. Um, to us, um, <clears throat> it's such an important conversation, which is the epistemology, the, <clears throat> the basis of what we believe in, what, what, what facts we can rely on. And, and one type of humility that I know of, I mean, we hear about humility all the time, which is the scientific humility saying, we know this much and that's good enough. And this is not a weakness of science and we can build on what we know. Um, we've done this throughout history. Um, just the other day, I was listening to this podcast about uh, somebody saying that, look at science. They were, they believed in Newtonian physics and now they, they're saying that that's out. And it was uh, beautiful how somebody actually explained that. No, it's not out. It's just a more complex version of micro versus macro physics. The same is true in nutrition science. It's, it's okay to say we have this much data. There's correlation. There's strength of correlation. And, and you do that very well. And, and, and the challenge in social media is because people want the, the quick, exciting, shiny, little extrapolated data. And often that's not true. So we, 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 we listen to you often. Yes, absolutely. Um, your background, um, you know, you're a clinical psychologist. So um, from what I read and from, from uh, your conversations, you um, see clients and patients who have um, a number of different psychological um, diseases and conditions, uh, but your main focus has been OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Is that correct, Nicole? Yeah, so that that's really my clinical specialty. I've been treating that population for over a decade now. Amazing. Yeah. And when you see them, um, it's essentially um, obviously looking at their symptoms, um, at their evolution of, of condition, and helping them understand and cope with it better. And is nutrition a part of that as well? Not at all. Um, so, <laughs> so actually, a lot of what I do in my clinical work with um, patients and clients that I work with, even if I'm not, if someone does not have the presentation of OCD, even if someone who just has depression, my, the, the conversation around nutrition is like 10th in line, you know, because mm -hmm. priorities for the patient in particular is they have a lot of symptoms, a lot of dysfunction, their quality of life is very poor and they're, you know, rightly so they are very zoned in on what do i do about these symptoms right what do i do about these behaviors how do i think differently about this how do i behave differently right and how do i practice these things moving forward so if i sort of ever enter in the domain of nutrition it is so far down the line mm -hmm. in terms of priority when i'm doing when i'm you know working one-on-one -on -one with people um that that's why in some way when i see these recommendations for just tell somebody to modify your diet when you're depressed. It's like so clear to me that you've never worked with a depressed person because that, that is so, in essence, the difficulty yeah. for to do. Yeah. yeah. I'm so glad you said that. And I'm really interested in uh, exploring that further with you. We both are because I think there's been some misconceptions and misunderstandings as far as the relationship of uh, lifestyle and particularly diet and mental health is concerned. Obviously, it, it, it definitely has some effect, but that effect has either been um, overestimated or exaggerated in many ways and oversimplified in, in many situations. Um, tell us from your readings, from your understanding and from your experience, where is where is diet? And I know that this is a very vague and a broad question, and I would love to actually break it down and go into the details of it. But, um, you know, like you said, it's usually 10th at the, at the bottom. Why is it so? And what makes us be very cautious about making oversimplistic mm -hmm. statements when it comes to diet and mental health? Yeah, absolutely. So it's so down low on the list because of how the strength of that relationship and how that exists, right? So if we're putting this into context, which is which is what we're trying to do, what I see pretty clearly in a lot of so prospective cohort studies, I think those are some of the best studies that we have 
to try to help us determine the strength of the relationship, if there is a relationship, and what's the context around if this is going to work for somebody, right? What are the variables that are needed in order for positive outcomes to actually show up? So um, what's interesting is that there was a really good, it was a 2018 paper that reviewed a different, varying uh, lots of different uh, prospective cohort studies. And what they showed pretty clearly was that any of the studies that controlled for baseline depression severity had no relationship between diet and depression. Absolutely none. And they, and also studies that used clinical diagnosis as an outcome, specifically from a clinician, also the relationship entirely disappeared. So that suggests something kind of strong here, right? That yes, there seems to be some level of statistical significance related to diet and depression as just a relationship. But if we look into some of the details, it's very context specific. So a lot of a lot of independent variables within itself increase depression risk. This is sort of what what we know as clinicians. Things like gender, things like previous depressive episodes influence future depression risk and future depressive episodes. Severity of depression at baseline if someone is having an active episode, that's also something that determines risk, right? Familial history, if strong mental health history will also significantly influence a person's depression risk. Um, other comorbidities, other psychiatric conditions, other physical comorbidities significantly influence, right? So high BMI, low SES, all of these are independent factors that way strongly correlate with the risk of depression as compared to diet alone. So that again, those are that's another reason sort of why that could be 10th, even 20th on the list of someone, because there's so many other heavier, larger variables that influence a person's depression as a whole. No, you're absolutely right. <clears throat> the relationships that people are making are so simplistic that doesn't take into account the complexity of variables. I was reading a, a, a paper, actually a couple of papers on even genetics. Um, the influence of genetics and, and things that seem obvious to us, weight or height, we, we make such broad statements of that relationship, not realizing that that relationship is actually determined much more by environment and all the a priori predetermined conditions or confounds that are early in life than even the genetics itself. And when it comes to intelligence and IQ, oh my goodness, that's been so overstated. When it comes to 99% of the population or, or the lower socioeconomic population, Genetics has so little to do as far as influencing the variance, the influencing the outcome. It does have more of an effect in the top 10%, top 20%, because then you've actually maximized all the other variables so that now genetic comes into fact. But for the greater 80 to 90%, there are so many other variables to look into, yet we overstate things as such as genetics, even with intelligence where we could actually focus on other, um, so many other variables. And the importance of this, as you, you say well, and, and it's critical to say, is because if we're misdirecting efforts and resources, we're losing opportunities. Mm -hmm. I, I, I was talking to somebody about all this talk about lifestyle and, and, uh, and health and, and public health, and, and we work in the hospital. You know, the greatest variable when they've looked at the complexity is, Investment in mother's health and mother's resources in the first five years has the greatest effect on the child's mortality, child's health, child's education, child's even later life expectancy. Mm. Yet nobody focuses on that. So I, I love this complex approach and, and not to negate nutrition. No, not at all, but put things in right perspective. I, that, that's so critical. And we are nutritionists, and that's one of one of our dear uh, degrees is nutrition. But to overstate it is 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 uh, self self fulfilling, yeah, self aggrandizing. Exactly, and that that's what I think about as a clinician, because obviously, like you know, working one on one with people, I care very much about communicating an effective intervention and and yeah. and doing an effective intervention with someone because time and money is precious for everybody. So yes, the allocation of resource, the, the loss associated when someone 
unfortunately can get down a path, right, where they're told that this is the answer when it's really not. Yeah. The, the, the time loss and the cost is, is extremely great, extremely great. Absolutely. Absolutely. There seems to be some level of disconnection and um, lack of trust when it comes to um, the clinical uh, sector, um, and especially when it comes to mental health. Nicole, I'm sure you've heard about this, and we all see that. It's um, it's quite common to open up your social media page and hear someone saying, well, doctors and psychologists don't know what they're doing, and they're bought by uh, you know, big pharma and that medication or c comparing medication to some, you know, life altering medication uh, uh, with food and some lifestyle measures, just false equivalency of all of these elements and, and judgment towards people who come from the clinical world. That's, I believe, massive. Um, and I think you're doing an amazing job at kind of reorienting people to say it's not this or that it's a combination of both and there are situations where medication and clinical work is absolutely necessary and that people have to adhere to medication and clinical work in your uh, in your experience working with patients in the clinic uh, do you see that that judgment towards the medical world do you see that lack of trust and how do you how do you go about it? How do you educate your patients to kind of get rid of that misunderstanding? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I I don't come it across as often, and I wonder it's because of part of what I do. You know, I tend to see people when the house is on fire. I don't see people when they want to prevent something, right? I see someone when there's a crisis usually sort of going on. Um, but sometimes I do, a lot of times what I see hesitancy for is psychiatric medication. And that's understandable because the, with anything, there's a risk benefit, you know, that you that everyone sort of has to do. But I definitely um, need to provide a certain level of education related to uh, people's sort of misunderstandings around, I would say, psychiatric medication in particular, especially when someone is trying to sort of push through with different behavioral interventions, and it's not working and their suffering is still sort of at the same level, that's at the point where I'll sort of reintroduce the conversation about medication again and reorient them towards, you know, this is temporary. Medication is not something that you need forever necessarily, but, you know, it's support, right? So I try to sort of reorient people towards thinking about medication as support. Like, I, you know, I'm support, medication is support, your family is support. These are all different ways you know, where you're going to access support and allow your quality of life to hopefully get better, right? And engage in life in the way. So I try to sort of frame it from that standpoint because that's what's real. You know, that that's why medication is there, is there for people, right? Is, is, to, is to help them move through this and to help them get to a place where they eventually, some people need it for a long time and some people don't. Um, so I'd say that's probably the place where I see more, more hesitancy around. And I do say, I see more hesitancy around that from, for a younger crowd than I do for like an older crowd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I just want to go back a little bit. Uh, you said uh, your the, your passion for psychology, and I was, my background in undergrad was psychology as well, and that's why I kind of went to neuro. I love uh, clinical psychology. What perspective was, is most, um, um, uh, you know, what are you drawn to most as far as, you know, the different schools of psychology is concerned? So I'm trained in cognitive behavioral therapy. I went to a program that was like really kind of super strict CBT. I also got some training in acceptance and commitment therapy. So I have a little bit of that, but I, I definitely am very kind of, I'm, I'm very a behaviorist. I'm, I'm very much a behaviorist um, because I see it in action. I do really see that play out super yes. well one-on-one. -on -one. So that also reinforces my behaviorism. So I'm definitely like a behaviorist through and through. Yeah, yeah. So, Amazing. Um, uh, given that, do you dabble into? Uh, although it's it's kind of a little bit out of uh, norms now, the uh, psychotherapy and uh, you know um, uh, getting deeper into the um, and into the woods of their underpinning psychological mechanisms, or as a behaviorist, which I am as well, and I love, which is here's here's the behavior, here are the mechanisms that I can see, and then here are the implementation of outcomes that we can work in and measure and change and adapt. Is that is that the way you approach it? Very much, very yeah. much. You know, I do, you know, there's cognitive interventions, of course, as well. Um, but a lot of, you know, it's really interesting because um, 
working and treating OCD. So the treatment for OCD is exposure and response prevention therapy. And that's a very behavior-oriented, very behavior-oriented treatment. It it almost doesn't deal very much with thoughts and it works. It works. And we yeah. even see that when it, in terms of like depression. So behavioral activation is a behavioral treatment for depression, doesn't even touch thoughts. And there's studies looking at if you dismantle um, aspects of CBT and you test the efficacy for these different treatments, behavioral activation is without any sort of cognitive intervention is usually the the, the best outcome there. So that all of that just, yeah, it, it's just really interesting that you can you can really sort of set someone up from a behavioral intervention perspective. And that with time actually allows for their thoughts to change. I love that. I love it. Uh, let's uh, get into, uh, first of all, let's define for the audience what uh, obsessive compulsive disorder is. And we can we can use that conversation to build a psychological um, uh, perspectives. Um, so, yeah, if you can the, tell the audience what the OCD is. Absolutely. So OCD is obsessive compulsive disorder, and it's characterized by two different things. So one is intrusive thoughts. So these are unwanted, distressful thoughts that a person has and experiences. And then you have compulsions and compulsions can be mental or they can be behavioral. And the compulsion is something that a person does or engages in in order to get rid of that thought or to get rid of the anxiety associated with that thought. So for some people, like the classic example, let's say for contamination issues for OCD. So if someone touches a glass and they feel contaminated, they may have to wash their hands three times. So that's their behavioral compulsion that's associated with that. And not say that reduces their um, anxiety and distress associated with their intrusive thought. So that's that's really sort of the main components yeah. of it. Yeah. And, and do you, sorry, uh, do you... And and although same thing with me, I, I don't get into to the underlying mechanisms of it because there's there's history of a lot of times there's history of trauma, early trauma, and and other factors that that has created that link. You don't get into those under underpinning mechanisms at all. Not so much. You know the the thing that I see um, so consistently is there's it's a really strong genetic link to OCD. So usually it's a parent or um, an aunt or something that had that also has a version of OCD. Um, but that is usually in a person's family. So and and there and that really shows up in the research pretty consistently that the genetic predisposition for OCD is pretty strong. So the thinking is that you have a pretty strong genetic predisposition, and then you have a major stressor that occurs in your life, and then you can get boom, a manifestation of symptoms. Oh, okay. So, so you yeah. think that uh, the 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 genetic factor, or, or have they identified a group of genes or a gene? Well, probably not a gene. Um, none of these have a gene. Yeah, probably. But a group of genes that that uh, um, uh, that have been uh, that have been associated with OCD. You know, I I don't know. I I know that that's that's always in the works. I mean, I I know the sort of neural mechanisms related to. Yeah. Uh, related to that, there's a lot of frontal lobe dysfunction, which makes yeah. sense. There's impulsivity yeah. and things. Um, but you know, I don't know, but that's, you know, it's, it's interesting that it's so consistent and I've never yet have met a patient who has not had OCD in their family. Never, not yeah. yet. Not yet. Wow. Um, yeah. Or whether that's, or other OCD spectrum disorder. So thing, even something yeah. like hoarding, hoarding also has a sort of spectrum to like OCD. So that, so that also too, I, there's always someone in the family that has something like that. Interesting. It, it, it's so interesting that how that works, the genetics and the family component. Right. The, the, it's very difficult to distill out whether it's a genetic commonality in the family or a behavioral or uh, or cultural or social component that's shared like a that, learned phenomenon a learned phenomenon mm -hmm. that dominates not necessarily one or the other and what they're what they've looked at different diseases is that sometimes it's not so much the genetics but it's the common behavioral aspects that 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 uh, manifest for example a lot of the diseases that are low serotonin so serotonin or dopamine we've all heard about serotonin related diseases or dopamine related diseases uh, be it production of serotonin or elimination of serotonin or connection of serotonin to postsynaptic uh, receptors. One of the, or some of the genes such as the 7R and others have been shown to be associated with that. What's so fun, interesting about this is, yes, they've found genetic diseases where serotonin is low, but the manifestation has been abnormal across the board, but the abnormality manifested very differently depending on the cultural background. Mm. 
and yeah, in one place it was a disinhibited behavior, let's say in another place, it is um, so um, socially inappropriate behavior, in another place, it's extrovertedness or, and so on and so forth. So as you can see, the manifestation is inhibitor in lack of inhibition, but manifesting differently depending on cultural availability or, or, or how the environment allows that behavior. <clears throat> so that's why I'm very interested on in that interplay of culture, genetics, neurotransmitters. Uh, it, it's, it's so fascinating, especially with obsessive compulsive disorders, which I've actually seen in so many different cultures manifested in, in very different ways. So I love your, your work. Absolutely. That's so interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. Um, even, even when they do twin studies in these genetic studies, be it monozygote or dizygote, now they've gone a little more detail and not just look at monozygote, dizygote, or look at them when they are actually, um, uh, and, and adopt an adoptive environments, because usually they're, they're adopted in higher social economy, but even in perinatal states, how the environment existed manifests much differently in their disorders and their genetic manifestation. Sorry, I'm getting a little wonky because you're getting your, your, this is your feeling. This is very exciting, but OCD, I think is one of those conditions that tells us so much about uh, this, this manifestation. And one of the treatments is SSRIs or high dose SSRIs, yeah. which is increases serotonin. Um, yeah, sorry. Uh, that, that's, uh, that's a very incredibly fascinating field. Yet another reason for us to make sure that we pay attention to nuance and yes. not come up with, <laughs> you know, yeah. broccoli is going to fix your, your, uh, your OCD. That's not, not the answer. Yeah. You know, you know what the other thing that I've been thinking about more recently too, is that, you know, how you see a lot of, um, like wellness talk around treating root cause, right? Treating root cause. What that's, that is what we do. We, Right. We do. We actually do treat root cause. We, if you go for, you know, I can only talk about what I do, but if you go for a psychological intake, you are sitting with me for at least an hour. I am asking you a ton of different questions, right? Related to context, not just your symptom, you know, profile, but I'm, I'm asking about your family mental history. I'm asking about any, um, other disorders that you may have. I'm inquiring about that. I'm looking at your other psychological history. If you've had that, I'm looking at any medications you've taken, right? I'm looking at your support system. How do you do in school? How do you function at work? Like all of these things are taking, taken into account beyond just your symptoms yeah. and clarity of symptoms and your frequency and all that kind of stuff. And then after sitting with someone for an hour plus, then you you think about, okay, what are the treatments that are available that are going to be best effective for them given all of the information that I have at my disposal? That's isn't that root cause, right? It, is. it, it is. definitely it is. is. It, it, and, and, and a complex root cause, not a singular. I mean, taking the whole spectrum of the uh, environmental factors. And and I and I, I'm also a big believer of cognitive behavioral therapy. To be honest. I'm not one that throws the baby out with the bathwater. Now all these lifestyle doctors now all of a sudden are anti-medicine. No, that has its place. And, and but cognitive behavioral therapy has what we've seen in multiple realms yeah. is incredibly effective because it does get to that behavior directly. And then you can you don't have to wait ten years of psychotherapy. You can actually trial and error, look at outcomes, look at responses, get feedback on 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 a in a in a ongoing basis it's a it's a fabulous method of of adjusting or or addressing behaviors mm -hmm. absolutely yeah. we do it in sleep disorders quite often correct yeah, yeah. and and it's uh, probably in, in many ways neurology yeah yeah if people are patient it's definitely more effective than than medication even at times right especially yeah. if they go through the entire program and have that supportive structure around them i think cbt is so important for sleep disorders yeah. yeah, yeah. CBT for insomnia has has been insomnia specifically. Yes. Well, yeah, pretty good outcomes for that. Yeah, amazing, amazing. Um, okay, so a, a little bit of a switch in gears. Um, I love when Dean, when Nicole, uh, you know, posts something, um, and it's related to some misinformation. 
you know, rather than correcting the misinformation, she spent some time actually evaluating why the person actually said that. Yeah. <laughs> she does a little bit of psychotherapy or psychoanalysis I, I, of the person, and I absolutely love it because it makes so much sense. Yeah, so so that's where you, you're, you're actually going to psychotherapy because in your practice, you're doing just behavioral cognitive therapy. There you're doing psychotherapy and getting into their relationship with their mother, basically, <laughs> and their father. <laughs> The father. She starts. Yeah. Well, there was a couple. There were a couple of posts that I, I just you know laughed a little, and I appreciated so much. She, but the, let's just let's just see why you're saying this. Yeah. First of all, where is this coming from? Yeah. And I think it's so critical for all of us to have that level of awareness and stopping ourselves to say why. You know, am I defining my terms appropriately? Am I coming from a place where I'm looking at the bigger picture? Have I considered all the elements and all the Say, for example, the um, confounding variables that end towards that particular goal. It's so fascinating. You do that. Do you do that with everyone? <laughs> do you analyze everyone you talk to? She's going to do that to, uh, to, to two of us after this. <laughs> no, I, I know. I, I, it's, it's funny that you say that because it's, I think on social media, I didn't even think about this super critically, to be honest with you, when I'm making posts like this. But to me, it makes a lot of sense to talk about their language, why they're talking about this yeah. way, how they're framing their message, and why that is important. Because if we're just arguing with the science, right, I don't think we're really going to get anywhere very far. Meaning if I'm just going to debate somebody on the information that they're talking about using yeah. science, I don't think that's going to get us very far as compared to identifying the language that's being used, how this is being manipulated, what they're actually trying to say besides the words that they're trying to say here, and why they're saying that message, right? Why is it benefiting them? Why are they taking that stance? Even though there's other evidence that goes against, let's say, what they're saying, there's a lot of things I think to consider related to that. And that's why I think that's really important because I think if we provide people with context related to this information related to here's the language of pseudoscience and here's the um here's the reinforcements for these people in order to talk about this i think that'll help more people identify things right versus us just arguing on on the level of science so it's so so brilliant i love that uh, yeah I, I mean this weekend i was a, the, i had a discussion with some friends and 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 i tried to be calm and circumspect and and get to the why. I mean, and 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 the why. You're right because if it's about data, you, I mean, we have some incredible sophists in our mists nowadays that that speak so eloquently and wear the right suits and the right hand gestures. We know who you're talking about, and 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 there's enough kernel of truth in what they're saying, but the rest is just flour and fluff, and and it's and and the whole thing. The kernel of truth actually serves the bigger purpose of an underlying why. Mm -hmm. It's a self-affirming, self-confirming, not for the truth, but a, a, a self-confirming phenomenon. And that's, that's critical that people actually become self-aware that, am I here talking because I'm trying to get to a truth? Or am I confirming the truth that I know or, I, or what I think is true? I'm just working the language to come up with it or affirm the truth. And as far as, and, and brilliant, and yeah. as far as language, mm -hmm. we've seen throughout history that the most vile concepts have had beautiful language affirm it. And we've seen it now flourish again in this horrible realm. It wasn't like they didn't have great thinkers affirming them. It, it's just that they didn't distill it down to to the why are we getting to a truth or are we just affirming or confirming a group of ideas or group of people? So your approach was especially, uh, I think uh, singularly uh, refreshing to us like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. I love it. She is a psychologist. She is. I mean, I think if there's anyone who can fight pseudoscience is, you know, uh, are people like Nicole who have a psychology background or understand human behavior? Because like you said, Nicole, we could spend hours exchanging this reference and that citation and this paper and that paper, but to expose where that, that clash or that misinformation mm -hmm. or that statement is coming from 
and what gain do they make, whether they're wearing a suit or no shirt at all? <laughs> uh, you know, we've seen both. Types. We've seen we've seen both uh, on all you know throughout the spectrum. I think that's so critical, and I love that you do that. Thank you. No, I I'm. There's actually a great um, talk on YouTube. It's David Tolan. He's actually a psychologist. He actually does a lot of work in the OCD world, but um, he has a talk on pseudoscience in clinical psychology specifically. And there's another great paper. He might be a, a co-author on this, but it's it's called like a 19 item checklist for pseudoscience and clinical psychology. But wow. it, it applies, I think it applies to nutrition absolutely 100%. Read through it. And I'm like, this all exists on in nutrition and social media. And so their, their viewpoint, which I agree with completely, is that if you just, if we conceptualize pseudoscience as a behavior, right, then we can kind of look at this a little bit differently. And I think that is the way to kind of attack it or to kind yeah. of do it at least, because again, I think that just empowers people, the audience, right? Into if they're looking at a post online or if they're, they're hearing specific claims, they can go through filters in their mind based on knowledge related to what scientific, scientific behavior is and what pseudoscientific behavior is. And then they can make judgments based off of that versus just looking at claims, right? The yeah. claims are superficial. That's not where we want to go. We have to look at like the all of the behavior of, that's behind the actual claim, and I think that that's what's helpful. Oh, beautiful, yeah. absolutely amazing. And 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 on the other side, pseudoscience and science, if we can demystify it, and 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 <clears throat> as Stephen Pinkard in that video, uh, there's a great video that uh, that uh, him and his wife um, have on reason. It's like if you're going to argue with me. What are you arguing with? It's with reason and science to to be uh, you know berate or downgrade reason and science. You've actually weakened your own position. So we, we, reason and science is not nothing more than an evolving mechanism of truth finding. That said, you don't have right. to make it anything more than that. Um, and, and and it appears that people like to put a it's almost like creating a straw man science as something else a, a well circumscribed thing that is supposed to do a particular bidding it's not science is thinking and an ever evolving ever improving thinking process it's not even a static thing um and 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 your approach of defining pseudoscience the combination should be enough for people then we can start from a starting point from a groundwork where we can all start having a conversation that's not on a paris on a, on a on a tangent that's driven by primary premises that are self-fulfilling. Um, um, and I think that's, that's needs to be more, you need to be highlighted. People like you mm -hmm. who do this kind of cleansing of thought need to be highlighted, but it's difficult though, yeah. isn't it? To it's be outside hard. of your comfort is difficult. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's hard. I mean, part of it, I think, is hard because if you're going to participate in Instagram algorithms, you're trying to do it in 90 seconds, which is yeah. pretty difficult. Um, but yeah, it's also hard because it's the opposite of what's a popular message right now, right? Mm. Like it really, it really is, right? So I, if we're just talking about people who are really popular on social media, who subscribe to more sort of holistic psychology things, their messages are much more simpler and they're much more confident and there's no doubt in their messages. And unfortunately that is so it's made for Instagram. Yeah. I mean, it really is made for Instagram. So it's, it's hard, I think because of the other factors that exist, I think it's also hard because of how our brains operate, which is yeah. that we want certainty, right? Yeah. We don't like ambiguity. And also it takes more time for me to watch a one, you know, a two minute video on the complexity and the nuance versus this person who's telling me I just need to heal my inner child wound, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I'm, yeah. I think I know, I, well, obviously there are very strong and very popular um, Instagram pages and individuals who are promoting that kind of pop psychology, like you said, that have a very direct and an absolute message and it's essentially kind of focused outside of this nuance that people from the world of science are trying to build and it's direct and it's cut and it's almost like blaming something or someone at some stage in their life for all of the problems that they're having. 
And yeah. unfortunately, like you said, that's how the brain works, you know, the simple message, the strong message without any doubt or nuance, but that's not how life is. We've, we've, we've been in many talks and in one of them, we're not going to name, but it's a pretty big one. A young man got up neuroscience talk, no background in neuroscience at all, but a nice tank top. Um, and he said, there are five things you need to eat to uh, fix your brain health. It's bone broth, it's the eggs, it's this and this. I'm like, you know, it, it, to be so certain, I mean, I mean, we are vegans and we say that we're vegans for animals and planet, but, but reality is fish is healthy. I mean, it's very uncomfortable for me to say that, but it's science that that's the data is there. I'm mean, a small fish. I mean, it, it's healthy. And, and, and reality is it's much more complex than that. We don't even say eat blueberries. Yeah. Some papers came out that two years, blueberries are good, but it's more of a entire food group. And it's not even just food. Yeah. It's gotta be exercise and it's not just exercise. Keep your mind active around your, your, the things you love and so on and so forth. So it's, it's, it's quite complex. It's, and it's a little bit uncertain because we, we, we change with data. Um, and we say in our wall, we have two teenagers. Our walls are whiteboarded so you can write on our walls. And it says, to the best of our knowledge today. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's not certain, but that's the way it should be. You should evolve with the data that comes and you should be comfortable with discomfort. And, and you're right. You're right. That uh, the more people, but here's the thing. I think uh, I want to hear your perspective. I think one of the greatest inventions in, in, in our time is TikTok. And whenever I say that they, so the reason I say that is because there's a lot of junk there. Oh my God. There's, there's so much junk, but availability of even some reason at a much faster pace than 500 years ago when the, you know, some, uh, the printing press came out and, you know, um, uh, uh, Hume or, or, um, uh, you know, uh, John Locke, John, or, David John Locke or David, somebody else wrote something that was spread by five people and would take 200 years for it. Now it's quick and the stickability of reason and true science as difficult as it is, is much more powerful than a thousand times more pseudoscience. So that's why I say to you, what you're doing is amazing. Keep it up. It's, uh, I think in the long run, um, that getting to, to the why is, is the most critical thing anybody does on social media, which is what you do. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. It, TikTok is a landmine. It is kind of unbelievable. Oh. That's really where I get more out there kind of comments. I get, I get more like, what do you mean diet is the answer sort of things or, yeah. or what do you mean like, you know, meds are part of like the system or whatever. So I get a lot more conspiratorial thinking. Yes. I don't know if I find that there too, but that's, oh, yeah. yeah, that. Yeah. That, yeah. No, no, no. I, I, I didn't mean that there wasn't that part. It's actually 90, 99% is that the 1% where you see somebody, some of the amazing people like yourselves, you know, giving complexity and, and that doesn't go away. Once it's out there in the ether, that's what will stick. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the pseudoscience will actually distill down by in itself, but it's the, it's the reason based things throughout history. That's been the case. It took longer because of the very nature of that. But, but I think that's, uh, that I'm, I'm optimistic about this. Uh, she knows. Him. I feed off of his optimism. I'm, I'm the misanthrope in the family, but <clears throat> I think, I think no. Dean definitely has a point, and I've seen that a lot of reasonable individuals, whether they're in the clinical realm or in, you know, in the world of science, <clears throat> working with data and numbers, are coming forward and presenting their thoughts. And there's beauty in that complexity. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of people are understanding the need to be comfortable with the things that we don't know as of yet. Mm -hmm. and not to go beyond that and extrapolate beyond the data. I think I see that trend. People are becoming reasonable. They are understanding that it's not as simple as, you know, just eat turmeric and you're going to cure your depression or something of that nature. Um, have you have you experienced that as well? Do you see people getting comfortable with with nuance? I think a little more. I do think a little more. And I think that what I also see is maybe I don't know if part of this also just the audience that I've, that I've been cultivating, but I've been getting 
um, a lot more openness related to, oh, I thought that this was true, but now that you explain this and then they have further questions, right? So I see a lot of that actually more, which is great because that really shows that people are more flexible in their thinking and they want to know more about what other people who are more evidence-based are actually talking about and they're interested in, you know, where that information is coming from. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. I, I love your eloquent um, 90 second post too. Like you said, it's kind of hard to do a 90 second post on something like, I loved your post on how serotonin from the gut has nothing to do with brain health. You know, that that's a big misunderstanding. And I think this whole gut brain axis thing is overblown, isn't it? It is so overblown. It is so overblown. And it's it's so pervasive on social media because again, it's really easy. How many times have you come across a post that was like, your gut is your second brain? I mean, how many times can we hear that? How yeah. many times can we hear that? Yeah. And I don't even know if people know what they're talking about when they talk about that. You know, like, what does that mean? What are you, you know, what are you saying? What are the words that you're actually I, saying? I'm usually not mean, but I want to say something like, if you think that your gut is your second brain, then your gut is your second brain. <laughs> Right, that's where your brain is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, no, I understand, and and we hear this so often right. that it, it becomes or so these and now it's very popular on our end or your end as well. All these huge statements about like neurotransmitter like dopamine, right, or or serotonin. There's complexity to these. There's so much complexity to so, these. So because we have an audience listening to this conversation as well, and Nicole, and we have you here as our guest, maybe. Maybe you can actually give us a little bit of a background, the way you explain it, of why that's not the case. Why is it kind of silly to call our gut, gut the second brain and how the brain, you know, the cells in brain and the GI system are different? If you could just kind of give an over, overview of that, I would really appreciate it. Absolutely. So yes, we do have an enteric nervous system and that it does exist in our gut, in our tract. And there are neurotransmitters that are produced there. They are gut-derived neurotransmitters. And they're all the neurotransmitters that are the same as brain-derived neurotransmitters, right? So there's serotonin, there's dopamine, GABA, acetylcholine. All of that is also produced in the gut. And while it's true that 90 to 95% of serotonin is produced in your gut, it's localized there for a lot of different kinds of other functions, right? So it's there in order to help with gut peristalsis, with other digestive functionings. Um, you know, serotonin, any neurotransmitter acts where it's localized, right? So if it's produced in the brain, that is going to affect things that we think about with serotonin that's associated with serotonin, right? So that's movement, that's learning, memory, all of that kind of stuff. Um, but this, all of the neurotransmitters that are produced in your gut, they do not cross the blood-brain barrier. So therefore, they cannot get into your brain. And those are not the neurotransmitters that are, are responsible for our mood, learning behavior, and all of that. There's there's likely some sort of influence and that's still being discovered. We still really don't understand completely how there is this communication network between perhaps the neurotransmitters that are produced in the gut and also what's going on in our brain actually. But it's not the way that is presented online. The serotonin that's produced in your brain is responsible for all those yeah. things associated with. Yeah, Absolutely. thank you so much for that. And then, so, you know, in, as an extension of this conversation, what is the current data on the role of nutrition on psychological and psychiatric diseases in general. Let's talk about depression because you know there, there are a lot of papers that are coming out and you did mention it at the beginning of our conversation, observational studies that show or that explore the link between diet and mental health. But in your experience, in your understanding, what is the role of diet and what should people do, especially those who are dealing with depression and what should they do as far as their diet is concerned? Yeah, so this is, this is a great question, and this is where a lot of nuance will, will come into play. So if we're looking at, so so far there's a decent amount of research now looking at diet and depression in particular. There's more research you know, focused on depression related to other sort of psychiatric conditions. And essentially there is some sort of relationship you know there does seem to be some sort of relationship between what we consider right a healthy prudent dietary pattern or sometimes it doesn't you know the dietary pattern it could be mediterranean it could be tuscan it could be vegetarian but some level of adherence to that does show that there seems to be some sort of lowered risk of depression and incidence 
It's just that the degree of that relationship, I don't think is as strong mm -hmm. as what people are talking about. And I don't think it should be one of the number one prescriptions for people actually. So for someone who has depression, there's a number of things to even think about in terms of their own context. So things like their their history of depression, if they if they are suffering, and there's different subtypes of depression, right? So if they're someone who has suffered from major depression, depressive disorder throughout their lifetime, and let's say their symptoms are in the more moderate to severe category, diet is probably not going to do anything mm -hmm. to this depression. What's likely going to be more efficacious for them is doing something like CBT or even interpersonal psychotherapy and probably some kind of medication combination. So that combination is probably going to be more efficacious for someone who in a, who's in a moderate to severe, especially severe range for depression. So that's really where, where that, you know, anybody who's suffering from that goes out. If someone is experiencing sort of subclinical symptoms, maybe just sort of like mild level of depression, they can function pretty well. They don't really have a strong history. They don't really have a strong familial history with depression. They don't have any other um, significant comorbidities and that psychiatric and medical, you know, physical as well. Um, then maybe perhaps dietary modifications can work. However, though, we also want to look at, well, what was your diet pre changing it, right? It seems like what the research is suggesting is that if you're going from a pretty poor diet to then sort of moderately adhering to a healthy sort of pattern, and you have mild subclinical symptoms with the other stuff that I mentioned, then you probably will have some kind of positive effect. That mm -hmm. that scenario is likely, yeah. right? So that's what I think potentially looking like modifying diet. There could be something there for a person's depression, current depression, as well as depression risk. But again, I want to count that in, but I would recommend doing other things before you even really touch your diet, honestly, you know, there's, there's even looking at stress management, better sleep, right? Going to therapy, right? Exercise, All of these, exercise right? All of these things are a stronger relationship, right? Between mm -hmm. depression risk specifically and these behaviors versus diet. So I think if you are going to look at diet, that should be not one of the last things because diet, it, again, it's not that it's not important, but there's other things that are, that are bigger bangs for your buck, so to speak, and they're more efficacious. And that depends a lot on a person's context. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Amazing. Absolutely. Amazing. This makes so much sense. And it's very helpful um, and empowering in many ways for people to see that, you know, there's so many ways that they can improve their mental health um, and not just necessarily focus on one element. Where just to reemphasize this point, because I'm, I have great passion for this point. I, as a I was the, in another life, I actually created the healthcare system for a couple of uh, uh, third world countries and, and uh, uh, the, the children component where diet has a significant effect is in low socioeconomic or in deprivation states. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Afghanistan and Somalia, 15% of the population or so suffer from iodine deficiency and thyroid deficiency, which forget about depression, it actually causes cognitive decline and lower IQ and all of that. So in the lower socioeconomic state, that's where we should be focusing a lot more on nutrition, especially in children and especially in the development stage. Yet we focus at a stage where there's not just deprivation, but actually excess and yes. other things can be so much more effective. This nuance and three-dimensionality of approach is what's needed. Um, otherwise, we're just uh, misdirecting resources and 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 causing harm. Lovely, lovely approach that you've taken. Um, yeah, absolutely. I love that. Um, at this point, um, I think there is such a big need for conversation around um, nuance and kind of stopping this potential damage that people can do to themselves by hyper-focusing on something that is based on false premises and, you know, taking them down another route. Um, and there, I'm, I'm also very concerned about these self-proclaimed therapists or, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, online coaches that don't necessarily have a uh, background in clinical psychology or behavioral neurology and are serving as coaches for individuals with serious mental health issues. 
Um, do you see that happening often? Uh, yes, I. Yeah. I just more recently, because what's happening now, but I think because of some of the content that I've been producing, I'll get DMs <clears throat> asking me, is this person legitimate? They have a coaching service. Like, what what is this? And then I'll just do like a really quick look. And I always look at what their credentials are. And if yeah. they don't have a mental health degree, they, they really, they can't offer ethically. They can't offer therapy. So people will couch that in language and call that coaching they'll sort of describe let's say um, group coaching or individual coaching almost in language that looks like therapy but they can't legally call it therapy because they don't have the credentials in order to actually do that um, and that's so dangerous that is so dangerous and i and that goes along with what we were saying in the beginning like the cost for people to go down a route like that, where you're seeking services, you don't even know it, but someone who's completely unqualified yeah. treat, right? Because that's what they're that's what they're kind of doing in, in these services. Or they're although sort of say that they're not, but they, that's what they how they're advertising yeah. it. And it's it's I, I it's really it makes me very upset and very angry because I know that there's a lot of there's a lot of really big accounts who call themselves mental health coaches but then when you look at their credentials there's really nothing supporting their ability to do so mm -hmm. yeah and it's so dangerous yeah. uh given that a person that's coming to a, a coach or men, uh, they're they're in, in need of significant help uh, be it depressions uh, substance abuse or suicidal ideations yeah. and and we see this quite often so yeah. i hope that there is something that can be done when it comes to that uh, because uh, that's costing lives and and they don't hold any responsibility because all they do is get somebody to sign some papers and that's it their responsibility is uh, done away with yeah um yeah uh, before we end i just wanted to kind of get to what that what we see here which is music <laughs> uh, your you and <laughs> your husband guitar there are guitars in the background for yes. those of the audience members who can't really who are not watching the video but there are guitars and on Nicole's wall and we saw earlier we saw a drum, drum set. set yeah Nicole is a drummer in the same room she's a drummer yes and and you cool. and you started your little two-year-old yeah so my two-year-old he loved music and I swear I did not push drums on this <laughs> <laughs> he absolutely loves it he can already do a beat like a really simple beat he can he oh can wow uh, yeah, it's just, it's amazing. It's amazing. Really, I it, love you it. know, it's so critical to start children that, that young and I'm, this is me. I'm, I'm envious because Aisha started very young. She was in a musical family and my, my children started like at one and a half, two years old. Their pitch is, I wouldn't, I, people over exaggerate that stuff as well. You know, photographic memory. Oh my goodness. I can't believe how many people have said it. And I'm like, <laughs> there's no such thing in any case. Or or pitch perfect. That's that's extremely rare. But they're very good with pitch. I couldn't tell you the difference between a C and a G. It's just <laughs> terrible. But but early start matters. It's just so significant. Um. So that's that's wonderful. Well, what what does music mean to you psychologically? Oh, I mean, music has always played a central role in my life. I started playing piano when I was eight, and then very soon after that, I started playing violin. And then I dabbled a little bit in guitar, but then I started drums because I really wanted to be in a band. So I just, once I was 16 and I liked rock music, that's what I, that's what I did. Um, so music has been always, always, always central to my life. I would, at some point in high school, I was spending three or four hours a day playing music. Um, and we would, we would play at bars and things like that. So, you know, oh, we, wow. it was always, it was, it's, it's always, always been um, like a very central component of my life. And I, I can't think, yeah, I, I can't imagine it without it. And just to see my son, you know, really love it is, is it's sort of bringing that out in me again, you know, it's like renewing my interest and in why I, why I became interested in the first place. And then, yeah, it's, being a parent is just, it's totally mind blowing. And I, it's so, so it's really wonderful to see that. It really is. It is. You know, I, I know you, I know we're going to be really good friends, Nicole, because I share the same sentiments and music is such a central force in our life. Um, I think music kind of saved us and get through uh, the pandemic. Um, it was such an incredible outlet and a source of joy and that stability that people kind of lost during the pandemic and throughout life. 
Um, I sing, my son is an amazing pianist. Sophie, my daughter is also a really good singer. And yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that we share that, yeah, that and, connection. On and I damage the guitar. But, <laughs> no, but nonetheless, really he's, non, he's no, kidding. nonetheless, we have these amazing sessions here, yes. music sessions in Redondo Beach. So you're welcome, your husband and kid. Ah. Yeah, so uh, yeah, you, have, you yeah. guys have to come down to Southern California whenever you're here. We'll have a music session together. Oh yeah, no, we can we can start a band together. We Let's do that. that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm thinking uh, of names. Uh, <laughs> right. I, I I have a triangle, so I'll do. There you go. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, it's wonderful to know you. You're we're, you're stuck with us now. Somebody who's a musician and reason based and 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 uh, holds themselves accountable to uh, to. Uh, higher standard of truth uh, we love you we love the, what you stand for and uh, uh hopefully we will we'll work together absolutely thank you so much for your time nicole it was wonderful to connect with you tell everyone tell the audience where they can find you and uh if you have a website that they can follow absolutely yeah so you can find me on instagram and TikTok at feed your mental and my website is www.feedyourmental.com Amazing. Feed your mental. Nicole, thank you so much. And we look forward to talking to you again sometime soon. Thank you so much. Thank you.